This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. And by the way, we now have merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Phil Torres is a philosopher and author who writes extensively about the intersection of religion and technology. He's a regular contributor at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. His latest book is called The End, What Science and Religion Tell Us About the Apocalypse. So that sounds like a happy bedtime story. Uh, what's the deal? Are we all going to die or what? Um, well, uh, that has yet to be seen. <laughs> um, uh, you know, just uh, yesterday, uh, the... Um, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, uh, this, their uh, uh, science and security board, uh, made a public announcement in which they said that they were leaving the doomsday clock, which is a metaphor for our, our sort of collective nearness to uh, some sort of global catastrophe. Um, where, you know, uh, midnight represents uh, doom or you know, some sort of catastrophic uh, occurrence, and the minute hand uh, indicates how, how uh, close we are. So they they announced that we're we're still at uh, three minutes before midnight, uh, which is the second uh, closest to uh, twelve o'clock we've been in uh, since the clock was was first established in 1947. Uh, I think it was 1953 where it was it was one minute closer. Um, so we're so pretty close. Eight. This is yeah. bad. Go ahead. So we're pretty close. Then this is still pretty bad. Yeah, it's so you know they they uh, they said there's some reasons for optimism, in particular the Iran uh, Iran nuclear deal, uh, the Paris climate agreement are both steps in the right direction, um, but there's there are at the same time there are emerging technologies, many of which I discuss in the book in some detail, uh, that are presenting uh, completely novel risks. Uh, and at the same time, you know, global warming, you know, the Paris Agreement doesn't, uh, there aren't really some, you know, robust mechanisms to, to enforce the agreement that was made. So um, there's still a bit of, uh, of uncertainty in terms of, uh, you know, whether the climate is going to, we're going to be able to ameliorate that situation or it's going to continue to deteriorate. So what should I be more worried about, I guess? Should I be more worried about the fact that nuclear weapons could get in the hands of the wrong people? Or should I be more worried about something like a virus that, uh, I don't know, whether someone could create and then unleash upon the world? Um, it's it's pretty hard to say what one should worry more about. Um, I did in the last chapter of the book. I do sort of rank, uh, you know, some of the, the biggest risks, which are called existential risks. Um, 
and you know, in my judgment, uh, something rather speculative of, of perhaps the most speculative risk right now, which is superintelligence, um, quite possibly constitutes the greatest uh, threat to the long-term uh, survival. Of and what is that? What is superintelligence? Um, so, so that just refers to uh, a mind that has all the capacities of of the human mind. So it's it's, it's a general uh, intellect, um, but it exceeds us in in various domains. You know, beyond what's what uh, is is uh, is capable by you know this, this the most intelligent human being. So is this like artificial intelligence could come back to haunt us? Is that the sort of thing you're getting at? Yeah. So there's actually superintelligence is is uh, is a term that doesn't um, it doesn't imply the material base, uh, the, the material substratum uh, of the intelligence. So it could be you know you could have a, a superintelligence that is uh, instantiated in a biological organism. You know, I mean, there are cognitive enhancement technologies. There are brain-machine interfaces. There, are, uh, you know, there are various. You know, there's a technique called. Uh, which is still somewhat theoretical, called iterative uh, embryo selection, which could result, uh, studies have suggested in humans with an 140 uh, extra IQ points than us. Um, so it's possible, but I, I think most of the experts agree that uh, superintelligence is much more likely to be implemented in some sort of uh, silicon or, or you know, carbon nanotubes, some sort of uh, material like that. So what is it exactly that I have to fear if they're super smart? Um, well, you know, the, the idea is that, um, you know, our sort of position at the pinnacle of, uh, of, of earthly creation, if you will, um, is, is not due to, you know, sharp teeth or, or claws or, uh, you know, our, our musculature or anything like that. Um, it's almost entirely due to uh, our intellectual capacities, uh, along with certain enabling things like bipedalism and, and uh, uh, you know, posable thumb. But so the idea is that if we were to lose that, we would be uh, one. We'd be in a situation that we've probably never been in in our our history, where we're actually uh, you know second to another species, uh, another kind of organism. That is able to manipulate and rearrange the world in ways that, uh, at the extreme, could utterly baffle us. Um, so, you know, a lot of theorists point out that we kind of have this notion of uh, of intelligence, which is very uh, anthropocentric. You know, you you kind of have the the village idiot, as it were, on one side, and then Einstein on the other. But really, when you're talking about um, you know the the potential for uh, an artificial intelligence to um, to think faster, to 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 acquire uh, a greater, you know, much larger library of concepts than we have. The comparison isn't between Einstein and and the village idiot, as it were. It's between uh, you know a, uh, an average human and a mouse or something. You know, so you you could imagine. Um, We'd be in quite a bad situation if you have a you know an artificial mind that's thinking at this at, not at this, the biological speed of neurons in the brain, but instead at the uh, essentially the speed of light, you know electrons moving around in, in hardware. Uh, and if it could grasp concepts, then we could be you know it could potentially modify the world in ways that would utterly baffle us in exactly the same way that 
uh, a chipmunk scientist would be baffled at how it is that a voice of somebody in China is emerging from a device in New York. So how far away are we from any of this? Because this this seems really far-fetched, or at least way into the future. Is this anything we have to worry about right now? Um, No. Oftentimes, theorists have to distinguish between the pace of research on in the, the field of artificial intelligence and then the rate at which uh, a super intelligent computer would emerge. So it could be, you know, by analogy, scientists worked for for quite a while to create a nuclear chain reaction. But once the nuclear chain reaction happened, you know, it was exponential. So, so I think a lot of the work has gone into whether or not a super intelligence would emerge exponentially, and kind of there definitely, I mean, there's a long history of people in AI uh, making utterly utterly wrong decisions about when in AI would first appear. And so I kind of shy away from that. I don't know. Um, There was a poll done with a bunch of uh, scientists in this particular field. And I think, if I remember correctly, you know, probably 90% of them agreed before 2100, Uh, you know, within the century or something, you probably have it. Super intelligence, as I mentioned before, I mean, it's it's absolutely a, a speculative uh, risk. There are much uh, more concrete risks like global warming, biodiversity loss is a huge one, nuclear war, um, and, and uh, you know, a, a designer pathogen or something in, uh, uh, created through synthetic biological techniques or, you know, biotechnology, genetic engineering, something of that sort. So it almost sounds like an asteroid or something that you don't even notice, but as soon as you do, you're screwed. Like it's going to yeah. hit you faster than you think. Yeah, so I think I think with a lot of this, it's it's, um, I mean, it really, it's genuinely the case. If you talk to uh, X Men, there's a whole field that that is 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 burgeoning has has uh, you know was established probably about 15 years ago, um, called existential risk studies, and um, if if you query the the experts in this field, I mean, there there is quite serious uh, concern about. Uh, about the future, and even though these, you know, the, the idea is that a risk is is the product of probability uh, times co- consequences. So even if you have a low probability risk in the future, if the consequences are huge, the risk can still be quite uh, significant. And I think that's the case when you're talking about human extinction or some sort of event that that permanently prevents us from. Uh, from sort of evolving into, uh, as it were, a post-human state or something that um, where we realize all of the extraordinary potential benefits of technology like extended lifespan and, uh, you know, the absence of diseases and, and things of this sort. Okay, so let's talk about religion. How does that play a role in all of this? So, um, so the, there's... The situation is complex but quite fascinating. Um, so, I, while all of these technologies are being developed, um, there, you know, there's a Pew poll from I believe just last year that predicts by 2050, uh, six out of ten uh, individuals on Earth will either be um, Christian or Muslim. Right, because they're so, breeding faster than the rest of us, and there's a lot of them to begin with. Yes, precisely. 
Yeah, so so say, you know, there's another study that predicted uh, religion would essentially go extinct in nine uh, countries: the Czech Republic, New Zealand, Switzerland, uh, and a few others uh, within the foreseeable future. And also, the U.S. You know, the the nuns, so-called nuns uh, in the U.S. are are increasing as well. So so there, there's kind of I would say there's sort of good news uh, in the Western world, but Africa, you know. Uh, you know, China and so on. I mean, religion is is sort of India. Is religion is really sort of ballooning. Um, so on. So on the one hand, you have uh, the the idea is that religion is 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 becoming more prevalent. At the same time, you have all of these technologies, uh, with the exception of of superintelligence, which could potentially be weaponized. But a lot of the fears don't have to do with the weaponization. Uh, a lot of the existential fears, that is, don't have to do with the weaponization of, of AI. Um, but you have a lot of technology, like biotechnology, nanotechnology, uh, and so on, that are not only becoming more powerful, but are also projected by virtually everybody to become more accessible as well. So at the extreme, you might have you know, small groups or even lone wolves who are, are uh, you know, hidden beneath the, the surveillance horizon, uh, working in the garage or whatever, who could potentially wreak unprecedented havoc on uh, on civilization. This is in part why the the bulks of atomic scientists uh, decided to keep the, uh, the clock at three minutes till midnight, because you have all these emerging technologies that are empowering uh, individuals. So how, so does the, of, how does the afterlife yeah. play a role in all this? Because all of a sudden you have this is the a fear that I think a lot of people have expressed about religion, which is that you have people who are very pious, who really do believe that they want to be martyrs in this life, uh, you know, so they could get this wonderful afterlife. How does that play a role in all this? Because you have people who don't give a shit about their own lives, who may be willing, if they got the right weapons, they got the right tools, to take everyone else down with them. Is is that a unique fear uh, that religion brings to the table. Yeah, so the, you're exactly right. I mean, the question is, who would want to uh, employ in, in advanced technology for the purpose of uh, inducing some kind of global uh, terminal catastrophe? And you could perhaps think of some, you know, really deranged psychopath individuals uh, who simply just have a death wish for humanity or, you know, want to get back at... Uh, you know, you, you, you know, want to want to get back at the world for some perceived injustice or something. But I would say the the, the major issue is is religious individuals who become convinced that you have to destroy the world in order to save it. And and part of the the book is about looking, you know, pe- peering back across the the vast expanses of human history and. And recognizing something that is quite clear once you you sort of squint, but not a lot of people are are aware that there's a huge history of active apocalyptic groups, groups that saw themselves as active participants in an apocalyptic narrative that's unfolding in real time. So, but those um, groups never had access to the sort of weapons we do now. That is that is that is exactly. I mean, that's the crux of it. We're, we're entering this new era where. It is not hyperbole. It's not unfounded. It's not uh, uh, silly to say that 
the apocalyptic fantasies of these individuals could actually be realized at some point in the foreseeable future. Um, so, I mean, you know, for example, just more recently, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, the around the world today, synchronically speaking, uh, you have the Islamic State, which is you know an active apocalyptic group. They believe they're they're a catalyst in trying to uh, effectuate you know various events before the last hour. Uh, you have the Eastern Lightning in China, which believes they're in an apocalyptic struggle with uh, the communist government there. Um, there's a Christian identity movement in the in the U.S., which, unlike I talk a lot about dispensationalists who are pre-millennialist, the Christian identity movement is post-millennialist. So they believe that uh, the world is going to get better and better before the second coming of Christ, which is the exact opposite of pre-millennialists. Um, but as part of that, they believe that the way to purify, cleanse, and so on the world is through catastrophic violence. So, I mean, they've been quite explicit about their desire to, you know, acquire nuclear weapons and use them uh, to, to again, to purify the world. You know, if you look 50 years ahead, you know, with this, with uh, exponential technological development, um, uh, you know, the Christian identity movement could genuinely have access to uh, what we might describe as as doomsday machines, you know, be, whether biological in nature or nanotechnological um, or whatever. So it is. It is the situation is changing. I, I do. I don't. Every generation has waved their arms in the air and said, "This is it." You know, the, the end is near, and so on. Um, but I don't think we should let that record fool us. Uh, a line I like to, to mention a lot is, uh, you know, sort of a uh, repurposed um, a quote from David Hume, which is, you know, the, the white person proportions uh, her or his fears to the evidence. And when you do that, it seems that today we really are in quite a unique epoch um, where bad things really could uh, come to pass. So is there a way for us to win this battle? I mean, how do you talk common sense into people who have these visions of the afterlife? Um, well, that's, that's a great question. I address a few potential strategies for, um, for maximizing the probability of an okay outcome for humanity in the, in the last chapter of the book. Um, but the, I mean, it's generally speaking, um, uh, most of the proposals are, are somewhat fanciful, I would say. Uh, I mean, it's literally the case here. You know, Elon Musk has said that there's a very strong humanitarian argument for uh, for colonizing space, and what he was referring to was essentially, uh, uh, you know, mitigating the the risk of existential catastrophe. Because uh, you know, the, the wider out in space uh, you are, the, the less likely is that a single in, uh, single accident of some sort is going to wipe everybody out. Um, there are other options like. You know, a lot of people, Stephen Hawking, Nick Bostrom, and so on, have uh, suggested either explicitly or implicitly that if superintelligence isn't the absolute worst thing to ever happen to humanity, it will probably be the best thing. Um, so, so you know, some people talk about, well, you know, you could create the sort of uh, super intelligent AI that it helps us to uh, to you know solve various the, the global problems climate change, biodiversity loss, uh, terrorism, and so on, that are sort of haunting our future right now. Uh, and the other one that I, I think is, is perhaps quite interesting and um, 
and that I, I find quite provocative is it comes from transhumanism, which is the idea that uh, we not only can, but we ought to use technology to modify our, our phenotypes in various ways. Um, so the idea there is if, you know, I mentioned cognitive enhancement technologies earlier, um, you know, perhaps there's some sort of modification you can make to, you know, the particular architecture of the brain that um, would make us less likely to, uh, to fall for certain kinds of, you know, epistemologically unfounded delusions about the world, you know, such as, you know, such as those relating to martyrdom and, and, and whatnot. So, so perhaps it's the case that, you know, in order to actually survive, we need to go extinct. Uh, not in the sense that the dodo did, but in a, in a sense of replacing our species with something that is, in the relevant senses, better. So are you optimistic, then, about the future? Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very tough question. Um, I asked the guy who writes about the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, part of the reason I, I write about it is I, I feel like... Um, I feel like what I mean the first step to to reducing the likelihood of some kind of extraordinary uh, historically unprecedented disaster is to recognize that the the danger you know is real. This the claims made by scientists from from climatologists to environmental scientists to those in the field of existential risk study. Um, uh, these claims are not like the claims of religion. I mean, throughout all of history, I mean, the tendency to, as I mentioned earlier, tendency to believe that an apocalyptic event is about to happen is quite ubiquitous across cultural space and time. Um, so people have had these worries for a long time. They haven't played out, but, you know. Long, I mean, I, my understanding is, uh, you know, both uh, Islam and Christianity borrowed quite heavily from Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism probably itself began as an apocalyptic movement. And, of course, you know, many New Testament scholars today, uh, the majority, as I understand it, uh, believe that Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet. Um, others have said the exact same thing about Muhammad. You know, he, they, they claim that he failed to designate a successor um, because he believed that the world was, was about to end. So, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, people all across uh, history and geography have have had this belief. There seems to be something deep in the in the human psyche that wants this this uh, weary world to, to come to an end and be replaced by something better. Um, but these days, so so I, I feel like it's there's a kind of the, the unfortunate consequence is people are a bit numb. I feel like to claims you know to the the crazy person on the street corner with the end is near kind of sign. But I, I genuinely think for philosophical or epistemological reasons, the claims being made today by scientists and uh, philosophers are different in kind, and they really ought to be uh, heeded. Um, and in fact, some of them, like Sir Martin Rees, uh, who runs the uh, Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge University, uh, he wrote in his uh, 2004 or 2003 book uh, called Our Final Hour that he believes it's a essentially a 50-50 probability that we'll make it through. That's, that's about the highest, uh, prob uh, the most dire uh, warning I've heard. Uh, most are usually around like 25%, but even 25% is, <laughs> is quite profound. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we could read 
uh, more about these the ways that these things may harm us and and maybe if there's any way to counter them. Uh, that's kind of the bulk of what this book is. It's called The End, What Science and Religion Tell Us About the Apocalypse. And there'll be a link to the book and everything in the show notes. Uh, thank you okay. so much, Phil, for joining me. And uh, is there anything else I'm forgetting here? Anything else you want to add? Um, no, that's that's good. It was, it was a, a real genuine pleasure to talk to you about this. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at FriendlyAtheistPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.